Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanick with Figured Out Baseball. I've got a great Figured Out Baseball podcast for you today. Uh, we are very, very lucky to be joined on the podcast today by the New York Yankees pitching coach, Matt Blake. Uh, very, very excited to get in touch with Matt. We, I was lucky to get in touch with him through a kind of a mutual connection. And uh, I just think this is going to be a real treat for all of our subscribers and listeners. If you listen to Figured Out Baseball podcasts regularly on the website, uh, know that you can also find our podcast now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more as we try to put our content in more and more places and always available for free uh, to our subscribers. Today's podcast is brought to you by Crossover Symmetry. I'll give you a background on Coach Blake before we jump into questions with him. He is originally from Concord, New Hampshire. He played collegiately at Holy Cross, a Division I school in Massachusetts. After college, he spent about seven years coaching high school baseball as an instructor at an indoor facility, uh, as well as coaching travel teams. Also, in that period of time, he was the pitching coordinator at the Cressy Sports, at Cressy Sports Performance in Hudson, Massachusetts, under uh, the very well-known Eric Cressy, who also is now uh, maybe coincidentally with the Yankees. In 2015, Coach Blake was hired as the pitching coach for the Yarmouth Dennis Red Sox in the Cape Cod League. December of the same year, December of 2015, he was hired to be the lower-level pitching coordinator in the Cleveland Indians organization, now the Cleveland Guardians. So that's where uh, Matt got his start in Pro Bowl. October 2016, uh, the Indians promoted him to be the assistant director of player development. Uh, he remained in that position until November of 2019 when he was hired to be the pitching coach for the New York Yankees. So, Matt, I certainly appreciate being on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to this one with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. So I typically like to start with something from the bio that stands out and something that, uh, um, you know, I think is 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 worth getting into and worth asking, asking questions about. And I think what I'd like to ask first is just basically from um, being a a coordinator to a pitching coach, uh, I'd like to just ask you a little bit, Matt, about what the difference was there. I mean, I, I don't know, uh, you, you don't get to spend as much time one-on-one -on -one with guys as a pitching coordinator when you were with the uh, the Indians organization, and then you were promoted to be the assistant director of player development. Again, not exactly working one-on-one -on -one every day with the same guys. You have your hands on a lot of guys, but not necessarily working with the same guys all the time. Um, what And, you and, you know, you didn't have any uh, high-level pitching coach experience before joining the Yankees. Can you talk a little bit about maybe anything that was uh, maybe some of the more difficult transitions for you or, or things that you found a little bit challenging going from being a coordinator to being a, a pitching coach for one specific team instead of the whole organization? Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, the natural thing is when you're the coordinator, you're really a, a coach of the coaches more than you know a coach of the players um, that's how we tried to view it in Cleveland where you're, you're really in a supporting role to try and you know think in systems so how do we op, you know how do we get the most out of our players well we do that by empowering our coaches helping educate them helping them bring them along so that you're really focused on your relationship with the coach to impact the pool of players because you know the, the biggest problem is when you know super coordinators come in after three days to an affiliate and you know, they jump in and start coaching all the players. It kind of impacts the relationship of the coach and the player. And then you leave and the coach is left with the player and they've got to, you know, bring the relationship back of, well, he said this or I said this. And you, know, you kind of get things tangled up. So we always try to keep it clean and you're, you're really there to help the coaches execute the 
plans for the players and provide support for them. And for me, it was, you know, really trying to tie the front office and the analytics departments and, you know, have the holistic perspective about the different domains, whether it's the strength conditioning or, you know, the training staff, trying to make sure we have a, a clear picture at, you know, what is holding this player back from being a major leaguer. Um, and then obviously when you transition back into the uh, coach side of it, you know, it's really just the, the difference of the, the day-to-day grind that you're in, the emotional ups and downs of winning and losing on a nightly basis at the major league level. And, you know, really that's the main reason why I wanted to get back into coaching was just the, the connection to the player and the, the feeling you're in the trenches with them and trying to develop something towards a championship. So um, you're a little bit more removed from in the coordinator role and maybe a little bit more flexible lifestyle, a little more balance, uh, a little bit more freedom and kind of where you go and how you operate, but, you know, maybe a little more dis, dis, uh, detached from the, the end result. But in a, in a way, in a sense, Matt, you were, by being a coordinator, you were, you're coaching coaches, as you said, and, and preparing, you know, helping coaches to, um, to get better at their craft. So in a way you were, I mean, almost preparing yourself, uh, I guess you could look at it that way, yeah. by, by coaching the coaches, yeah. you were probably sort of uh, laying a lot of the building blocks that you maybe use as, as a pitching coach as well. Is that uh, totally. fair to say? Yeah. And I think, too, that just the entry point that I got into Cleveland was really helpful. It was kind of opportunistic in a sense that coming in as the lower-level coordinator with, um, like, the upper-level or main pitching coordinator, Ruben Niebla, who's now the, the pitching coach for the San Diego Padres, um, he had a lot of, like, institutional knowledge. He had coached, you know, for 15 years at all the levels. Uh, he had been coordinating for, I want to say, three or four years at that point. Um, so he had a really good understanding of, you know, how the Cleveland, you know, Guardians operate operated, uh, you know, what pitching coaches should be doing at the pro level, you know, maybe what some of the natural tensions are of, you know, the pitching coach in front office, pitching coach and coordinators. Um, so he can kind of lay a lot of the like institutional knowledge down and show me some of the like the leadership components of that while I kind of got a you know, lay of the land, of, you know, what we were doing as an org. And I think more so my first year, almost like coming in as a consultant where my skill set was really in like tying in the physical side with my time at, you know, Crusty Performance where, you know, basically it was, you know, the strength training and the skill side kind of merged together in a private facility. So I think that was kind of the value for me, you know, getting in there and trying to help pull some of these holistic player plans together while not needing to necessarily lead the coaches or the players or the scheduling in the first year. Um, and then, yeah, I'll, while you're doing that, you're kind of crowdsourcing, like when you go into these affiliates and these coaches have more experience than you coaching at these levels, like what are the best practices? What are they doing well that I would want to emulate if this was my turn? You know, and I think one of the things I valued about Cleveland was that they, they gave the coaches time during the season. So if they had a, a graduation or a family party they had to get to, like they might take a three-day break and then the coordinators would go in and, you know, fill in for them. So I got some opportunities at AAA, AA, high A to go in and coach for three to five days at a time and, you know, kind of keep your chops fresh there, if you will, um, and, and get the, the tension of being on the ground. What are the things that I would need differently or how would I respond to things that are happening, you know, as a coach? Um, so I think just giving you a different perspective and hopefully preparing yourself for that opportunity if it comes. Matt, what are some of the differences and even potentially some of the similarities between coaching pitchers at the levels that you had previously 
particularly at you know high school age players and jumping mm-hmm. in, in, into coaching you know established for the most part established major leaguers and I'm asking this Matt because as I said before yeah. we started recording I, I want these podcasts to be um, a good resource for for guys that are coaching at all levels and I think a lot of our subscribers uh, a lot of the listeners to our podcasts uh, are involved at the high school level though we you know we have college coaches I think that listen to these maybe even some pro coaches we have guys that are that are involved in baseball as, as low levels as as little league so um, I guess what I'd like to um, well, I guess what I really want to ask with that question is what is the what does the job description look like for you as a major league pitching coach compared to what the job description might look like you know when you're coaching 14, 15, 16 year olds, like how much different is it for you at this level as far as, you know, it's what you're doing day to day and and what your main responsibilities are as far as getting these guys ready to have success on the mound. Yeah, I think the the biggest difference is just that there's so much more information at the major league level that you're trying to apply and the players are so much closer to their like true potential. So you're, you're not doing as much developing and you're doing more like optimizing of the players you have. Um, cause there's not as much long range development to say, you know, like, uh, you know, Corey Kluber, for example, like he, he kind of is who he is and you're kind of tweaking some things where you know, you're 14, 15, 16, and even your, you know, 18 to 21 year olds, like they have uh, a window of adaptation ahead of them that you're trying to push them towards and trying to figure out what the, the low hanging fruit is for each player to, to maybe attack and get better at, you know, whether it's getting stronger, moving better, fixing their delivery, you know, teaching them different pitches. Um, I think that the similarity in all of it is that like, these are all humans trying to perform a a difficult task. And I'd say for the most part, you know, they all want to be coached. It's just a matter of, you know, what type of coaching do they want and on what environment, you know, what type of information can they handle? So you're always trying to meet the player where they're at and your major league player may just be a little bit more advanced, more experienced, you know, more things to to draw from where you might have less to draw from on your 14, 15 year olds, but you also have more growth ahead. So it's maybe easier to push them in a, a productive direction. One of the things that you experience with all the information that you have, I'm sure, is that basically every hitter that your pitchers are to face in a major league game, you have all the information you could possibly imagine and you know exactly what their strengths and weaknesses are. Um, at the high school level, not nearly as much information. A lot of times a, a high school coach, when when calling a game, for example, doesn't know much about that hitter except maybe what he saw the previous year. Maybe you can find a little bit of perfect game video or PBR video online, something like that. But you don't have a whole lot of a scouting report. You're left with a lot more of like what your pitcher's strengths are and what he's capable of doing as opposed to pitching uh, maybe to to hitter's weaknesses. Uh, can I ask you, Matt, what um, maybe what percentage or, or ratio, I guess, it, again, if this is a fair question, yeah. your overall pitchers, are you primarily pitching toward a pitcher's strengths? pitching toward a hitter's weaknesses, a combination of both. And if it's a combination of both, which I'll, I'll assume that it is, can you talk about maybe like what the, what degree um, do you, do you go with either of those when setting up a plan, you know, for a game against a particular lineup? Yeah, I would say even at our level, it's largely trying to identify what your pitcher's strengths are and really honing in on those. And if, you know, loosely probably 80% strengths, 20%, you know, opponent tendencies. And obviously, you know, if you're facing, you know, the, the premier players in the league, the Vladimir Guerrero's, you know, the Otani's like, like there's probably some weighted, you know, factor that's more than 20% when you're facing those guys, but you don't, I think typically want to get too far away from what your pitchers do well. Um, 
Um, so I think we're constantly trying to put our pitchers in a position to succeed by telling them what their strengths are, getting them to buy into what their strengths are, and then going out and executing their strengths as consistently as possible, and then understanding where any of these nuanced you know, adjustments might be coming into play throughout the course of a game or a season. Um, but I would say at most levels, identifying the strengths and really trying to attack those is probably the, the right path and probably the the easiest path where I think you might set yourself up for uh, a little bit of, you know, failure uh, when you go the other direction, try and do things outside of the scope of what the pitcher does well. That being said, how much time do your pitchers spend watching film? And I think this is something that uh, is worth asking even for youth coaches that are listening to this because now more than ever, there's film available in college baseball. Uh, at, at a lot of different levels, especially at the Division One level with uh, with synergy, that you can basically watch anything that you in any game, any any hitter, any situation that you want, really, really easily there. Um, and I, and I'm and I'm assuming at other levels of college baseball, you can find a, a decent amount of film on some guys as well once you get to that level. And again, even in high school, you might be able to see a little bit from time to time. But how much time, if any, do your actual pitchers spend watching film on the opposition, or is it primarily up to the coaching staff to watch film and then sort of uh, go to the pitchers with a plan of of what uh, you know of how we're going to attack guys based on what you see. I'm just I'm curious if your pitchers like to watch film on on hitters, and maybe that's different from guy to guy. But can you talk a little bit about that and about just kind of generally speaking what your guys like to do? Yeah, you obviously have a wide range of uh, behaviors there where. You know, our most advanced, you know, starters might spend more time over the course of the week of, you know, obviously watching the games in front of them, trying to get a read on who the, the hitters are, but then spending time before their outings watching, you know, I'd say anywhere from, you know, two hours to five hours of video. I don't think many guys in the course of, you know, their five days are watching much more than that. Um, and I would say on average, it's probably an hour to two hours for a lot of our starters. Our relievers are probably picking and choosing some of the, the guys they're watching. And I think it, it's a tricky game to play when you're watching video too, because depending on, you know, the quality of the videos you're watching, the recency bias you might get into of watching the last 10 at-bats, things like that, you you might be picking up on something that's really, there's not much signal to, like you're just, you're walking yourself into a trap of, well, he did this well, so I can't pitch there. But I think it's it's something to, to take part in and obviously identifying what the hitter's swing looks like and things that, you know, maybe he does damage on or he creates swing and miss towards. But I think it's, it's one piece of the puzzle, and obviously, it's it's it can be misleading at times if used improperly. That's kind of what I why I wanted to ask because I think with video and then all of the other data metrics uh, that that is available now, analytics that's available to both hitters and pitchers, I think that most levels of baseball are still trying to figure out how to use that. Um, mm-hmm. In other words how much time do you spend on that stuff? How valuable is it really compared to what uh, preparation might've looked like 15 or 20 years ago uh, when obviously you could still find video for, for big leaguers, but, but you didn't necessarily have a lot of the, and most of the analytics and data wasn't really available and it really didn't you know start creeping into college until the last five or 10 years at most levels. And again, I think a lot of coaches and players are trying to figure out what the right balance is, how much to use all of that stuff. Uh, again, whether it's video or whether it's rap soto or or whatever it may be, yeah. what about on on that sort of thing on that side of, that side of things, Matt? With um, uh, just pitch data, pitch data, whether it be um, you know all the, all the things that a rap soto or whatever you guys might use, all the mm-hmm. data that that might spit out. 
how much attention do you do you pay to those sort of numbers? Or is, is it something that you look at every outing, every bullpen? Is it something that you only look at and really bring to the attention of a pitcher when things aren't going well? Like, hey, so and so slider wasn't that effective today. Like, let's go back and see what yeah. what the problem was, or maybe they were just seeing it well today for whatever reason or whatever. Do do you look? Uh, I'm I'm curious to see how someone at your level and the pitchers at your level use data, how often they look at it, or or if you feel like oversaturation with data and analytics can actually be detrimental to your pitchers as far as just going out and trying to perform and, and you know, having a feel for what's working that day and, and just kind of, you know, gutting out a performance, which is, again, what you might have heard from, from guys, you know, before uh, data really started coming along. That, that was kind of the plan. See what's working today and, and go at it and kind of and kind of gut it out and, um, you know, try to have a feel for the game. So curious about how that works within the Yankees organization at this point. Yeah, there's obviously a sweet spot for how much you want the players paying attention to it because obviously, you know, you can create uh, paralysis by analysis and trying to understand every single piece of information and data point that's out there and the fluctuation that might happen across, you know, a bullpen to a game across a couple months. But I do think it's we're we're very on top of it as an organization and as a coaching staff about who our players are and maybe what the best versions of our players look like. And that's something that we talk a lot about um, really from the beginning of spring training that we're going to hold our players accountable to objective things that we know to be true about them when they're going well. And, you know, for us at the major league level, you know, we're solving for getting out at the plate as efficiently as possible. So, you know, what does that look like when you're creating the most amount of swinging miss or avoiding contact or throwing strikes you know whatever the thing is that we want to put attention on but i think then from there just monitoring across you know bullpens into game you know live vps into games and then you know outing to outing like there's obviously more fluctuation for relievers you know on a nightly basis with smaller sample sizes but you know for starters you usually get a, a decent bulk of work you know anywhere from 60 to 120 pitches depending on you know where you're at i think those give you pretty good barometers of, you know, what, what the pitcher had for stuff and maybe, you know, what was going well or not going well. And I think for us, it, it gives us an opportunity to have conversations and, and give direct tough feedback to players that's not personal or subjective or my opinion. And I think that's the important part of using the data is that it kind of it centralizes the conversation, hopefully removes some of the ego or the personality out of the conversation so you can make meaningful change with players and get buy-in around things that we've agreed upon to be important um, and i think that's how we use it most i've got to imagine that sometimes the egos are are not all you know not easy to work with um and i don't even mean that in a bad way necessarily but sometimes yeah, no. guys that that pitch it at, at this level at the major league level have had such success that that i would imagine it at sometimes they're they're uh they're not real receptive to, to wanting to change. Do you find that at your level, um, and, and I, and I, this probably is the same at, at a lot of different levels that for a high school kid who has been having success the same way. Like I, I'm sure there are some high school players that would be resistant to change if they've been continuing to have success, but at, at your level, Matt, do you, do, do you, do you wait for guys to sort of come to you and say, Hey, this isn't feeling so good or I, I don't like how this is going. Like, what do you think? Uh, are, are you, um, are you the one that, that's sort of 
starts that conversation? Do you wait for guys to come to you? Do you feel like that's, is that an individual thing as well with guys? And, uh, and does that change based on the amount of time they've been in the league and how much success they've had? I'm just, uh, yeah. part of this question, Matt, is just to, again, sort of guide younger pitching coaches as far as how aggressive they should be when talking with their own guys and, and sort of when to make changes and, and how to have your pitchers be the most receptive if you have an idea that you think is really going to help them. And I think that obviously you're at a different level than most people listening to this, but I think it probably transcends to most yeah, levels totally. of baseball when guys are going to be most receptive to listen to uh, someone talking about a change. Yeah, I think it, it's, it should be a two-way street. Like there should be opportunities for you know the player to come to you with you know thoughts about things they need to work on or things they want to change or reasons they don't want to change. And there should be opportunities for the coach to do the same um, and you know basically provide suggestions or you know resist players wanting to make change on you know you know small samples of things going poorly or not feeling right. Um, so it's definitely a two-way street. We talk a lot about partnering with our players, but I do think that's why it's important early on to maybe get on the same page with players about, you know, who do they think they are right now? Who do they want to be? You know, what's the gap between that? What are the things they need to improve? So if you're a, you know, sophomore in high school and you want to play Division One baseball, but you're throwing 75 miles an hour, you might say, okay, well, your average, you know, Division One player throws 85. So if you want to be a Division One player, like we've got to close that gap somehow. So even if you're throwing a ton of strikes right now and you're getting high school hitters out throwing 75 that's probably not going to be enough to get you to a division one level. So we need to make some changes. It may not be right now, but if that's the goal you have, then we need to maybe think about your development path and things that are going to help you there. Now at the major league level, you probably don't have those wide ranging, you know, gaps, uh, but it's more so getting them to understand that you're throwing this pitch too much or in this area, or you're not shaping the ball the right way. When, when you're at your best, you're throwing this and it looks like this. So you have to do this with your delivery or, you know, there's a bunch of different conversations that may come up, but I think on the front end of the, the, the whole deal, when you try and figure out how to partner with the player, it's identifying what they think of themselves or what they think makes them a good player or is helping them have success. And then, you know, maybe what are the things that they're open to, you know, thinking about for change or introducing new information to them and then what environments is that in do players like being coached in front of other players do they want that environment to be you know one-on-one -on -one? do they like data do they like video so i think it, it really is uh you know i don't want to say it depends but it's really understanding the players that you're dealing with and maybe their appetite for change and their ability to understand the information um, and then you know what level of success are they currently having and i think that definitely factors in what about for guys, Matt, who don't love data? And I don't know if yep. you have any of those guys or not, but guys that, that really don't like to look at analytics for whatever reason. Yep. Um, do you have those types of guys? And if so, how do you as a coach who I would imagine you still you still feel like you need to know the data, how do you go about talking to players about what the data shows without necessarily like shoving data down their throats if, if you have guys that really don't love to look at that kind of stuff? Yeah, I'd say we've got a lot of guys that don't really want to think too much about it. And I think the one th way we, we get to that is we still have to get to a point where we agree what the best version of them looks like. And maybe, you know, whether that's current or future um, or historically what they've looked like at their best. I think 
there needs to be some level of objective piece of information. It might be one data point. It might be uh, a delivery uh, visual that we have for them that we think you know gets to their best version. But then from there, it's just the trust that we'll monitor the data and we'll only bring things to you when we think it's important. And we're going to really have to boil this down to one data point or one piece of information. We can't over overload these guys. Um, and ultimately, you're trying to bring that back to some level of feel, um, or subjective quality that they can own in their throwing process or their delivery um, that they can take a, and make uh, decisions on the mound with. Because at the end of the day, like when you bring analytics or data to the player, if they can't make sense of that and take it into make, you know, actionable behaviors, it's not really benefiting them. So I do think that there's there's obviously a balance of well, we can't just say, well, no data works. You know, there needs to be some level of objective backing to our conversations. It's just we may not make that the feature of the conversation. Today's podcast is brought to you by Crossover Symmetry. If you want to build cannon arms that stay in top condition all year, check out armcare.com. Developed by Crossover Symmetry, armcare.com measures players' arm strength, and range of motion and delivers customized prep strength and recovery training based on each player's wellness scores strength needs throwing workloads and fatigue it gives you the tools to keep your players at their peak all season so check out the team packages on armcare.com and gain a competitive advantage in player development your players will be healthier throw harder and win when it counts crossover symmetry and armcare.com Matt, with several of the things that we've talked about so far, I, I honestly, I wonder if your degree in psychology comes into play much. Um, how much do you use that with, uh, with, with coaching and just how you interact with guys or even just how you, um, how you pinpoint how each player wants to be interacted with and how they want to be coached? Like how much, I, I know that a lot of guys that have coaching in their future, you know, a lot of guys will, will major in something maybe along the lines of kinesiology or, or something like that. But yeah. to you, how much has your degree in psychology been beneficial for you, if at all, uh, as is in a, in your coaching profession? Yeah, I think it's been uh, really the backbone of kind of how I've approached players. I think there's a lot of things around just social dynamics and group settings and understanding how people operate, behaviors that happen that way, understanding individual personalities, understanding how to deliver feedback, like all these things are, you know, tied in to some psychological concepts and uh, the philosophy minor that I had probably ties into a lot of the, like, finding logic and first principle thinking to, to help understand problems and get to solving problems for players, but then psychologically understanding, you know, how to approach these players to, to get the most, you know, benefit for them and, you know, not get adverse reactions, things like that. So I do think that, that they all kind of weave in and then, you know, having spent so much time with Eric Cressy where that could have been, you know, uh, a negative, a net negative, not knowing the bodies, you know, spending time to really understand kinesiology, anatomy, to, to make that less of a weakness and more of a strength. So like, I think they all come into play in you know, certain aspects, but at the, you know, backbone of it, certainly the, the psychology degree and, you know, where my interests were in college have certainly helped. So along the lines of turning more of a weakness into something that's more of a strength. And also you mentioned bullpens earlier, just, uh, you know, just with, yep what you're doing with your major league guys in bullpens, Matt, that your pitchers are throwing either, you know, between outings or, 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 or even in, uh, in spring training, probably more between outings during the season. Are your 
players, your pitchers working more on, well, let me just ask you, what are their goals in bullpens and what are guys typically working on in a major league bullpen? Because I, I think that bullpens are also a place that, uh, that really, they're not optimized at youth levels. Bullpens oftentimes are just like, hey, these pitches are scripted. We're just going to throw them with no real intent. And that's a time when guys could be getting a lot better, but maybe they're not. They're not really optimizing that. So can you tell me what a major league bullpen looks like and if it's different for starters, relievers, if it's different for established guys as opposed to uh, you know, to a rookie who's still trying to kind of feel some things out? Can you just talk about a little bit about what goes on in bullpens and, and what some goals are for different guys down there? Yeah, I'd say the majority of our starters that throw a consistent bullpen in between, and I, I would think that they, they've they come to a, a certain script that they like to follow that emphasizes their strengths to make sure that they're calibrated between outings, you know, executing certain pitches with certain shapes to certain areas and making sure they touch all the, the pitches that they feel like they need to keep in rhythm between, you know, their, their starts every five, six days uh, at the major league level. And then there's probably a, a part at the back end of a, a bullpen, depending on how many bullets we want to, you know, use that day, where they're probably trying to push on a skill they want to improve or add um, to their arsenal. Um, and obviously uh, there could be anywhere from, you know, 10 fastballs in a bullpen to, you know, 35 to 40 pitches in a bullpen where you're throwing everything and sequencing and, you know, talking about different, you know, plans that you maybe use for the upcoming opponent. So definitely a wide range, but I do think that the, our best starters, uh, from what I've seen, they generally have a script for about the first 15 to 20 pitches that they really like to iron out so that they know their delivery's in sync, they're calibrated, the shapes that they're trying to throw into the areas they're trying to throw, and then they'll move on from there. How do you decide, Matt, how many pitches are thrown in a bullpen? Um, and, and let me just sort of a part B to that question. Do starters always throw does, – does a particular starter always throw the same number of pitches every time that he's in a bullpen between starts, or does it vary week to week depending on how he's feeling – not only physically, but like how his pitches look like if his, if his pitches are really crisp, is that going to be a shorter bullpen than if his pitches aren't so crisp? Just kind of curious about that too. Again, kind of just, um, you know, trying to help pitching coaches at all levels to, to do a better job with bullpens between starts or even for a reliever's bullpen to try to, to sort of structure those. So I'm curious about how you structure, you know, bullpens for guys for the Yankees. Yeah, I think, in an ideal world, there's probably some level of flexibility for every bullpen just because, you know, if you threw 135 pitches on, say, Monday and you normally throw your bullpen on day two, uh, it might be hard to recover. And we're not usually throwing our guys that many, but it's probably going to put you in a position where it's hard to throw a quality bullpen on day two. So, like, if you're saying, I always have to throw 35 pitches you may not bounce back particularly well for that bullpen and it might actually set you back for the next start. So uh, I do think that there needs to be some level of flexibility based on, you know, how you feel like you're recovering when your next outing is. Now, if you're every seven days in college or high school, like there's definitely some level of uh, recovery that can happen before you get on the mound. You might be day three or four in, in high school, maybe even day five, depending on, you know, if you play another position, and, uh, you need more recovery. But I do think there's probably a, like your 
A bullpen is set up to do this. If I feel good, I'm going to execute this. If I don't feel great, I'm going to maybe pull back on the volume or intensity a little bit and really only focus on this part of the bullpen. Um, there might be a scenario where you push your bullpen back a day, and now that throws you out of your routine, and you maybe you add volume because of that. Um, so I do think just thinking through, like, if I, in an ideal world, feel completely recovered for my bullpen, I would execute this. Now, when I get to that day and I don't feel fully recovered, do I still want to execute that? And what's the cost from today on my next outing? And there's a lot of guys that will just power right through it, throw their bullpen. They've got 35 pitches. They're going to throw it. They might pull down the intensity, and they just go on, and then they just work on the recovery for the next outing. And there's other guys that will just skip the bullpen. So I think it's it's being smart about how your body's feeling and recovering but with the caveat that it doesn't mean you're not working. So if you're not throwing a bullpen, there probably needs to be a, a lot of leg work done in your throwing programs and in your recovery work and your strength training to make up for the lack of either recovery for that bullpen or the lack of repetitions you got in that bullpen. So it's not a way to opt out because you don't feel good. It's a way to change the direction of your recovery plan to go, you know, more towards, you know, soft tissue recovery, getting the training, you know, stimulus in outside of throwing. But yeah, I definitely think that there's flexibility is needed, um, especially as you know, over the long course of the season and, you know, different, you know, things will come in, whether it's weather, or schedule changes, things like that, where if you're too rigid, it might set you back in trying to be consistent. To stick with bullpens for a little bit longer, how do you grade a bullpen? How do you decide whether a bullpen was successful or not for your guys? And, or even when your pitchers walk away, like what are some things that, that need to happen for pitchers to feel good about the bullpen they just threw? Or things that might happen where a pitcher walks away feeling a little bit discouraged, um, you know, based on that. And I want to say this too, Matt, just because I want to help coaches out there to have, have the maybe what we what might call a proper focus in a bullpen and, and be the proper amount of focus in a bullpen. Uh, again, where I think it's an area where in youth baseball bullpens are often just sort of something that where guys are going through the motions. But I'd like to know just for you guys uh, what maybe some, some things you have in mind that make a bullpen successful after it's over. I definitely think it's important to set the expectations and the plan for the bullpen before the bullpen starts so that you can effectively assess what happened in the bullpen. I think a big mistake that a lot of guys get into is they just hop up on the mound and then just throw 30 pitches and then it kind of just unravels on them and they're not really sure what they're working on and they just keep throwing. And it's hard to say you got anything out of that other than, you know, you stressed the body and got some reps in, but there wasn't a, a particular intention or focus for the bullpen. And I think that's an easy place to go because it's just, you know, it's, it's mindless work and you just got it in and there may be no one watching you. But I think if you set the expectation for the bullpen or what the intention or the focus or the goal is, I think that at least gives you a place to start the conversation when the bullpen's either going on or after about what happened. Um, and I think that's where it's the, the adjustability is important because, you know, the bullpen for Garrett Cole is going to look drastically different in expectations than the, the bullpen for your JV pitcher at the sophomore. Um, so I think being clear about, you know, meeting the player where they're at, what they're working on is important, where there might be some guys where you're just saying, I just want you to work on throwing 70% strikes over the big part of the plate. I don't care what pitches it is. I don't care what, you know, what area it ends up in. I just want you to focus on throwing strikes today. There might be velocity bullpens where you're saying, I'm trying to get to a certain velocity. I don't care about the strikes. 
and then there might be certain pitch specific bullpens and data specific bullpens where we're trying to create certain shapes so there's definitely a wide range of types of bullpens you can engage in and i think it's just being clear on like what are we trying to accomplish by throwing these pitches and then we can talk about what happened after matt i'm not sure if you can put yourself in this in these shoes or not but if you were a high school pitching coach today generally speaking with the with the whole staff the whole pitching staff what would be some of your goals some of the things that you would sort of tell your players are the most important things and i i bring this up just because of what you said about throwing x you know percentage of strikes in a bullpen um and and i often i I think that sometimes youth coaches and even down to like the little league middle school levels are too focused on things maybe they shouldn't be focused on not focused enough on the things they should be what would some of your main focuses be for like an entire pitching staff as a whole if you were a high school pitching coach today, if you can put yourself in those shoes? Yeah, I think that the first thing that comes to mind is if we're trying to create a competitive team, trying to win, you know, say a high school championship, we've got to get as many pitchers capable of throwing strikes as possible. So if you say have 15 to 18, you know, players on your team, you know, we've got to have, I would say, you know, eight to 12 of them that can pitch, you know, that might sound like a big number for some high school teams. But I think when, when I was at Lincoln Studbury with Kirk Fredericks, that like, obviously it's nice to have your ace go and he's going to give you a productive outing. And there's certain things you're focused on with him, but ultimately the bulkier seasons probably going to depend on pitchers seven through 12 or six through 12 and what they can give you in, you know, filling games out, finishing lopsided games, giving you some innings here and there and protecting your, your main guys from having to overthrow. So as a, just a team construction, not limiting your innings to only your best three or four pitchers, because then you don't create enough depth to have a, a deep run in a postseason setting, which I think is really important. And even at the major league level, we had issues, you know, a couple of years ago where we, we didn't create enough high leverage relievers, you know, or guys that were comfortable pitching in high leverage to, to give us enough depth to get through a postseason run where I think that was a focus for us, you know, last year and then going into this year, it's getting as many guys reps in situations that they grow and develop. So you're getting more guys accustomed to pitching in meaningful situations. And then I think specifically targeting, you know, do they have a primary pitch that they can throw for strikes at a, you know, I would, let's say 65%, right? You could argue if it's 60 or 70, but 65 is probably a decent number. Can you get a primary pitch 65% of the time? And then if you can do that, it doesn't have to be your fastball. It could be a changeup. It could be a breaking ball. It's something you can throw for strikes consistently. And then do you have something you can change speeds with, you know, whether it's a changeup or a breaking ball uh, or if it's a fastball off of your primary pitch. So I think it's just thinking through getting as many guys as possible that are capable of throwing strikes and then trying to identify what's the one low hanging fruit for each guy of adding uh, ability to throw strikes with a breaking ball might be key. Or if you have two pitches, adding the change up in your catch play. Um, I think thinking logically about how do we add more depth and variety to our staff is really important. That's really good stuff. I want to talk a little bit more about just, developing pitchers we've sort of gone back and forth in this topic a little bit but about just data uh and and analytics for pitchers and one of the things i read about you was that one of your strengths as a minor league coordinator was being able to um to use data to actually help pitchers which is something i I touched on earlier i think there's a lot of data out there i think there are a lot of 
people that run facilities that have indoor facilities, for example, where there are kids, you know, eight years old through 18 years old that are, that are coming in there and training and they might have a rap soto, they might have a track man, they might have hit tracks for hitters or whatever it may be. But a lot of times I don't know if they, people know how to use that data to actually help someone. Um, if that's, if that makes sense, how I'm, how I'm saying that, I think that, yeah. that even if, even if guys can say, okay, so-and-so spin rate on his fastball is this and his, his, his spin rate and his spin axis on his curveball is this. And uh, now what, you know, what, what do you do yeah. with that at this point? Yeah. If you were to, to talk to, just say you were in a room of youth coaches who all had access to data and analytics what would be one or two things, Matt, that you would suggest that at the youth level, thinking from high school level down, that would be their primary focus as far as like this piece of data can actually help you. And here's how, here's how I would use it if I were you and maybe some other data you can sort of, you don't necessarily need at that level. Like it, 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 are, are there one or two things that you would point to uh, that you think might be some some sorts of data that you think can be useful at that level. And then coaches can use uh, that data to actually help a guy get better in a game to, to, as you said a minute ago, just to get better at, at at being a usable pitcher at the high school level. Yeah. I think there's a bunch of different ways you can go with it, depending on, you know, you know, the type of players you're working with their, you know, their level of understanding of the information. And I, I would think at the very least, you know, you have a, you know, Rapsodo, TrackMan, you know, radar gun, you know, pocket radar, whatever it is, and create a baseline for guys on, you know, say it's, you know, their, their fastball velocity in, you know, March is X, in April it's, you know, X plus one, in May it's, you know, X plus two. You know, I think understanding just a baseline of who these guys are, and then, you know, the more resources you have, like understanding the pitch profiles, like what, what shapes do they throw? Like what kind of movement does the fastball have? What kind of movement does the curveball have? Like, and just creating baselines on guys, so you kind of understand how they're evolving and uh, is the velocity ticking up when we do something with the delivery? Is it, is it going backward? Is the movement changing? And I wouldn't even necessarily say act on the information right away, just capture and then start to watch. And then you'll start to notice certain things that are happening amongst your player group is, hey, we've been long tossing a lot and giving them more recovery on their throwing in the infield and the velocity has been you know, ticking up because we're not putting as much stress on him across these all these different activities or as he's worked on his stride, his breaking ball has gotten better. Here's the objective information we, we can see. And then it's like, okay, how do I learn about that? Well, there's plenty of resources out there now online. And I would say, you know, Driveline's a great a place to start, you know, looking through their blogs on just different information about objective data and using, you know, pitch metrics, things like that. But I would say at the very least, try and create a baseline on who your guys are from a velocity standpoint, just to understand what they have. And then if you can get to a movement standpoint, that'd be good. Uh, but I wouldn't try and coach too much on it initially. Just try and get a better understanding of like who your players are. Do you think that, that people that have access to data coaches that have access to data should, should, do you think it's a, it's okay for guys to use that? to sort of help them experiment with guys and, and get objective results. When I, when I say that, for example, a, a pitcher's slider is not that sharp. So we're going to mm -hmm. mess around with some other grips. And rather yep. than just use the eye test, 
we are going to use Rapsodo to see which one uh, produces the high the highest spin rate, the tightest spin, the 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 most break. Um, is that something that you think that guys should be doing at the youth level, or do you think that's a little bit of a misuse of those types of tools? I think it's it's probably in the direction of productive behavior. You know, I think it's just it's being mindful of some of the limitations of the tools you're using. Where for a while we were using um, Rapsodo pretty consistently across bullpens, and we would always come to this issue of is the data accurate to what we're seeing in the bullpen? And if it's not completely accurate, what's our comfortability of coaching to the data? And it's, it's, it's a problem we've wrestled with quite a bit, um, just in terms of, well, would you rather have a coach just use his eyes and guess, or would you rather have him use some of the data and then try and be understanding that there might be some limitations and you got to start to understand what those limitations might be in terms of, you know, the consistency of the tool. And if you're setting it up properly every time and in the same place, every time, you know, I think that there's definitely some pitfalls to using technology that you have to be aware of, but anytime you can find a consistent objective metric to lean on, whether it's velocity or spin rate or some, you know, some type of calibrated movement, I think those are productive things to test and retest in bullpens. It's just, you know, not letting it be the end all be all. If you think you're seeing positive results in a bullpen, it's not necessarily registering on the tool, but it's, it's, it is leading to productive outcomes in a, in a competitive setting. Like our, I think there are areas where you might override what you're seeing objectively. It's just, you have to kind of know the rules and, you know, before you start breaking the rules. Can you expand a little more on that? Just about what you mean where, the data might not match what you're seeing as a coach and, and when sometimes might be where you might rely more on what you're seeing as opposed what you're seeing with your eyes as opposed to what you're seeing with the data. Yep. And I think with, you know, some of the tools, you know, people have out there now and access to rap soda, like it's just the way they track the ball through the imaging and the optical, um, you know, measurement, like you're not necessarily going to capture the movement exactly right every time especially when there's a lot of gyro involved in the pitch uh it just has a hard time processing what the movement's doing where if you're using TrackMan, TrackMan's not actually necessarily visualizing or in the old models visualizing the pitch it's just literally tracking the ball and its movements so your movement might be better but your your understanding of the spin efficiency may not be as good where you'll get a pretty good understanding of the spin efficiency of the ball and the rapsodo but the actual movement might be inaccurate so that's where i think it's it's trying to be understanding of like what are the tools we're using, what are some of their limitations and how they're tracking. Um, how do we work around that if we add a high-speed camera to, to visualize things and then compare against, you know, there's other ways around it. They just become more expensive and, you know, have more time to you know, process data and information and visuals. Uh, so understanding the resources you have and the support you have is definitely important before you engage uh, on this path. Do you think, Matt, to, that to coach high school baseball today, that you need to have, that you need to find a way in your budget to to get some of these tools that can measure uh, objectively what's happening with guys? Or do you think that it's still possible to be a good pitching coach today without having a rap soda or track man at your disposal? Because they're they're expensive, and a lot of high school programs, uh, you know, they they can't. They probably, they probably a lot of high school programs out there that can't afford one. Do you think that you that you that's something that coaches should really strive for, and find a way to get it done, or do you think that it's still possible to do their jobs without them? 
Well, I definitely think it's still possible to do your job without it. Like there's, there's still a lot of truisms of the game that you can build at the foundational level of, you know, youth baseball, high school baseball, and even the college baseball that don't rely on understanding, you know, the data that you're like, in terms of like pitch movement and tracking that, that like we require, you know, a $5,000 Rapsodo or a $30,000 track man. So you can definitely improve players without having those tools. Now, do the tools sharpen your ability to improve the players, assuming you know what to do with them? Yeah, I think so. But there are a lot of things that you can get players better at that you might involve a stopwatch or a pocket radar, you know, things along those lines that you can make a lot of headway. Just having good practice habits, get it, you know, building a good foundation of a throwing program that you don't need to know someone's spin rate. Now, if you were to optimize their pitch mix and their arsenal and their usage, yeah, there might be some things that you need to acquire to do that at a high level. But I don't think you, to, in order to win a high school state championship, you need to necessarily know someone's spin rate. You know, I think that there are a lot of things you can do better uh, by you know, running an effective practice efficiently and putting good habits in and all those things that would build a, a foundational baseball player that can execute in you know, competitive situations. Matt, before we run out of time on this podcast, I would love to ask you and have a conversation about your job path. Uh, yep. I think that there are a lot of people out there who... <laughs> they look at what you've done and think like, man, I, how great would that be? Or like, I think I could do something like that, but don't know where to start. Maybe it doesn't end up as, yeah. a, as a major league pitching coach, but I think there are a lot of guys out there that work at facilities or mm -hmm. that are coaching high school baseball that are pretty advanced at what they do. And they would mm -hmm. love to get to a higher level, whatever that means for them. But that the path of how to do so is not always, always clear to people. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how it even got started for you? I mean, uh, yep. you know, not that long ago you were uh, in various positions, but you were working primarily with, um, you know, with with high school players. You were working in the private sector yeah. in the baseball world. And then even from, even from that jump to getting a job as a coordinator with the Indians. Um, and then, you know, just a couple of years later, you're, you're a major league pitching coach. Can you talk to people just about, about that path? And about like some things that you did right, some things that you think mm -hmm. that you did that that got you noticed, that even got you the opportunities to get you started on this path, and, and in a way that um, if we could talk about it in a way that other people might try uh, to emulate, or just or just know what some of the important things are that they need to do to put themselves in a position for someone to notice them. Can, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I, so initially when I got started, it was right out of college and I, I was working on a sales job, not thinking I was going to do baseball as a full-time thing, but I was, you know, interested in, you know, giving back to the community. I was living at home. My dad coached me. So we went out and coached a rec team together and I thought that was fun and enjoyable and we had success doing it. And then I, you know, coached an all-star team that summer and, you know, some kids wanted some private lessons, you know, and this is 2000 eight around there um so i just i started giving some you know one-on-one -on -one lessons to 13 and 14 year olds and uh you know one became two and two became four and you know while i was doing this i think i was frustrated that you know in my playing career i never really had a true understanding of what like the high level delivery looked like there just wasn't a lot of information out there um that i thought was like 
true, like foundationally true. Like there was a lot of jargon and like old school fonts about like what pitching should look like. And you could look at the greats and, you know, Roger Clemens, Nolan Ryan, Greg Maddox, and they all did similar things. But without using just like pitching jargon, how would you explain that? And I think I started going down a rabbit hole of trying to find like, you know, foundational truths about like why is that important? Like, why does that move make sense from a, you know, a true, like, kinesiological standpoint, you know, understanding the anatomy? And so that's where I started doing a lot of research, you know, trying to find articles about, you know, you know, what high-level throwers were doing, whether it was from ASMI or, you know, reading Eric Cressy's blog. Um, you know, I kind of just started, like, searching around and trying to apply it and test it on players uh, that and these you know 13 14 year old private pitching lesson environments and so I think that was initially the, the way I, I kind of assessed what don't I know and maybe where do I go find it um, and so just you know being curious and open-minded to some different thoughts and looking at different avenues was probably the starting point um, and then I think it, it really you know I, I got some momentum I started doing you know say like 30 lessons on Saturday and Sunday and making more money in those two days and it wasn't my sales job the other five so like something was like kind of off kilter a little bit like I needed to spend more time in this area and lessen the you know the, the, the printing sales area and I just wasn't sure how to do it um, but I kept kind of plugging along um, I had a, a mutual acquaintance um, through Holy Cross that introduced me to Eric Cressy so I reached out to him because um, I was interested in some of the things he was looking at from a you know a basically a, a a physiological level like understanding what throwers look like what do they need to work on from a, a training standpoint to help them with their delivery um, so I kind of ex- was starting to explore that in our conversations about pairing the skill and the like the creating ability of being a better athlete um, and and while this was happening I was trying to grow my network so uh, Eric Cressy introduced me to Kirk Fredericks to go coach at Lincoln Sudbury Kirk Fredericks introduced me to Steve August to go coach the Northern Roughnecks you know Steve August introduced me to Matt Hyde to help out with the New York Yankees you know as an associate scout and all these things are you know essentially for free I've got to you know butter my own bread I've got to bring clients into Cressy's place to get you know lessons in you know Kirk's not paying me anything I'm a basically a thousand dollar stipend I think the first year I might even work for free Um, I'm working for free for Matt Hyde like knowing that I was 23 24 25 like I probably had a higher risk you know that I could get to like I didn't necessarily need as much money at that time so I could kind of like just get by and kind of build some headway um, and I think not being scared of that was important because all you know all my friends you know were getting jobs at you know IBM or financial companies and starting to make money and I was kind of like you know, treading water, doing this kind of passion project that everybody was kind of questioning, like, what are you doing? You know, when are you going to get a real job? And, you know, I think the, the, the being true to like, this is giving me, you know, excitement for what I'm doing. I, I have a, a direction forward. I didn't know what the market necessarily looked like. I didn't know if there was a college opportunity or a pro opportunity down the road because, you know, the, the pro opportunities really hadn't come around yet. Um, but I think that the daily, you know, getting up and, you know, 
not, I wouldn't say grinding, but I was, you know, putting in lessons, you know, really, you know, if you look at the, the way the calendar laid out, I was trying to make the most of every single day and either improving players or meeting new people. And so, you know, we're, we're coaching Lincoln Sudbury from, you know, third Monday in March until probably the first week in June. I'm coaching the Roughnecks from the first week in June till September 1st. You know, I'm running my lesson business from September till the third Monday in March. I'm scouting kind of around that. So I'm putting myself in all these areas to meet new people, learn new things, grow your network, get a new opportunities. So, you know, really trying to create like a bigger surface area to have luck happen. Um, and while this is happening, um, Eric Cressy obviously has an outlet on his blog that has a lot of traffic. And I started writing content for him and sharing videos and, you know, really pairing the technology that maybe hadn't quite been brought to the masses yet with at the time it was right view pro it was a, a software company that had the license to major league players to show in slow motion so i think just trying to see where the market maybe hadn't moved yet and trying to be ahead of that while just working every day at it really drove that like that creative process for me and got a lot of exposure um you know obviously i'd grown my network pretty considerably we'd had some prospects develop we started working with pro guys at cressy so all these things kind of snowballed together but it really just started with being curious about learning more about like the truth of what good pitching looked like that's so interesting at the beginning um and you're not the first guy that I've talked to that I've, I've sort of asked how they got the opportunities they did. And a lot of it just started with curiosity in one place or another and, uh, mm -hmm. and led to some other things. So when, when you got hired with the Indians, Matt, was that a job that you applied for just blindly? Was it a job that you, you knew somebody that kind of helped you to get an interview? Just kind of curious how you got your start there. Yeah, so things had kind of snowballed for us um, at, between Cressy and I and, you know, our exposure. And we were getting a lot of interest from, you know, college teams were starting to ask if I had of interest. And pro teams were starting to ask if I'd be, be interested in coaching a, you know, Gulf Coast League team, a short season team. And, you know, I built a pretty sizable business at Cressy at that point. Um, and I was making, you know, pretty good money, you know. You know, I was working a lot of hours, you know, I might have been doing, you know, in the bulk of the season, you know, 80 to 90 lessons a week, which, you know, is, is a very physical toll on you, you know, to do that. So I knew the shelf life wasn't forever in that in that space. Um, but I had done some public speaking um, at the ABCA convention at uh, Pitchapalooza, which is a pitching convention in Nashville. Um, so I started to get some exposure to other teams and uh, the Indians were kind of at the forefront of kind of like seeking out more progressive instructors and coaches through these different avenues that weren't just, oh, he played uh, pro ball so he can coach pro ball. They were looking into the college ranks. They were looking into the private sector. Um, and so they reached out and I had, had a, you know, some just mutual contacts with some of their, you know, front office members. Um, and they originally offered uh, an affiliate coaching position, which I was just trying to, you know, this is probably the first junction when I was like trying to weigh like what path you want to go on you know do i want to stay in the private sector and keep doing this and grow the business and try and figure out a way to make this work in the long term do you want to get into pro ball and coach on that you know daily grind which is a different you know animal altogether and i wasn't quite ready to make the leap to be an affiliate coach um but then they had some movement around and they actually had that lower level coordinator opening uh, which they came back to me that same off season and offered and i think that met the threshold of 
you know, interesting work, you know, interesting position, flexible lifestyle, could still live in Boston, keep the business going at that time. So there were a lot of, you know, balances within that role that I think really helped me say, okay, I can take this step and not feel like I'm like over committing myself and going away from something uh, that I really enjoy because, you know, I was happy at the time, so I didn't want to screw that up. And so I think that was being very careful about making some of these decisions. Um, and I, ultimately it was, I feel like the, the right one because it you know gave me a, a huge growth opportunity to learn a lot from, you know, pro players, pro coaches, the front office in Cleveland, which is really highly regarded and you get a lot of learning opportunities. So I really think things took off when I got involved with them. And then you're the New York Yankees pitching coach. <laughs> um, even with that, I don't think people, most people can wrap their heads around a, a position like that, including myself. But Matt, is was that a, is that something like when a New York Yankees pitching job comes open? Are you, are you sending your resume for that? Are you like having guys make calls for you? Or are they coming to you because you're on their short list of guys to interview? Like how how do you even? How, how do you yeah. even get to that point where you're in contention for that, for a job like that? Well, it's just interesting because at that time, there really hadn't been many major league pitching coaches that had come from other areas yet. Like Wes Johnson and Derek Johnson kind of broke into the, the major league circuit from uh, like premier college positions and, you know, Derek Johnson was a, a coordinator before that. Um, but I think those two kind of stood out to me as like, the, okay, there are opportunities growing. A lot of teams had started looking into the college sector. Um, I felt like I had a unique value in terms of, you know, maybe my, my skill set, my understanding of the office dynamics, the coordinator role, understanding what players were looking for, how to facilitate those conversations. You know, and I, w- I had been talking with the, the front office in Cleveland about, you know, if, if a role had come open at a major league level or a college level that I was interested in, I had interviewed in the past for the Duke position and the Wake Forest position, you know, along the way that I knew that I had still interest in getting on the field. But um, I just remembered that day when we heard uh, Larry Rothschild got fired um, by the Yankees um, or they weren't renewing. Um, that we were, went to lunch and came back and Chris Antonetti, our president at, in Cleveland, you know, called me into his office and, you know, I, I had a good relationship with Chris, but it's not often I get called into his office. So I was kind of like, oh man, <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> um, and he, he just said, well, I just want to let you know that, you know, Brian Cashman reached out and they're interested in interviewing for a role um, with their major league team. And I was like, really? I was like, I mean, just thinking about, you know, New York and the expectations to win every year. And I would have thought they would have, been pursuing a more like tried and true like not a retread necessarily but someone who had experience in the role that they could plug and play with given the roster that they had um and then i I just wasn't sure you know what the expectations were for interviewing me if it was an info grab you know a lot of teams will you know try to interview employees to learn about you know what people are doing and so i got a chance to to you know, basically call Brian Cashman before I accepted the interview, just to understand like, okay, what, what are you guys looking for in this role? Why are you asking to interview me? Like, are you serious about, you know, my skill set and background being the major league pitching coach and what would that look like? And, you know, the, the pushback from the media, the fans, the players, like, what does that all look like? And we walked through, a, you know, you know, probably a you know, 20, 30 minute conversation about, you know, things that they were hoping to achieve by, you know, opening this role 
roll up and seeking out new skills and the types of people they were looking for. And, you know, they weren't sure if I was the right fit or not. Just they, you didn't know what I was going to look like in a uniform. I had never coached really at the professional level. So, um, but they were interested in the skill set that I might be able to provide. Um, so I went and interviewed um, with the group. And uh, I think just the, I, at the time they were looking for someone to help bring information to the players um, and bring our players up to speed on what was available to them, the resources that were at hand that the Yankees had maybe developed but hadn't really fully utilized or pointed in the right direction yet. And so my role in Cleveland was like very well suited to help with this, assuming that I could get the buy-in from the players and get the trust from the players. And, you know, the game wasn't going to be too fast in the dugout. So um, all those things were a part of the conversation and, you know, uh, talking through Brian Cashman's, you know, vision for it. I felt like there was really strong alignment. Just, I still wasn't sure that they were going to go in that direction. And, you know, ultimately they did. And, you know, here we are, but it was definitely another exciting time, but also a a pivotal turning point too. Uh, And this is a conversation that I'll always remember with Chris Antonetti, where he, he walked through, like they were putting the offer on the table and trying to think through, like, is this the path you really want to go on to be, you know, a major league pitching coach in New York with the bright lights and the expectations and the different, you know, lifestyle involved of this 200 day train, you know, versus being in the front office and all the different paths that are open to you there. So um, it was a really good, you know, ex- uh, exercise to walk through about like, what, what do you really want to do with your life? And does this fit now? Would it get better later? You know, all these things were coming up and, he was very neutral and in, in trying to help me understand that the decision I was making and trying to take away the shiny object of, you know, New York city and the New York Yankees and, and really think about like, what are the actual behaviors and activities you're going to engage in over a 365 day cycle in these different environments. And is that a, a something you're more interested in? And if so, please go take that. But I also don't want to like push you into that because it's a shiny object. Um, so it was a really interesting you know, seven to 10 day window decision making. But uh, in, in hindsight, I'm really glad I did it because it was one that I, I felt like if I turned down, I would always be kicking myself for not pushing myself to take on this challenge, even if I fell on my face in the first couple of years. There are so many things I'd like to ask you. Maybe I should have asked this question to, to lead off the podcast and we could have spent the first 45 minutes talking about this. <laughs> That's right. But I just want to ask to kind of wrap this up. Because this is again, I'm I'm a you know I'm a life lifelong baseball fan, lifelong Pirates fan, growing up around Pittsburgh. I've coached at the college level, you know, but but never anything like that. It's hard to even put myself in that position, Matt. Opening day, your first season with the Yankees, like what was it like for you just to step out into that dugout and coach your first major league game, especially your first game at Yankee Stadium that year. Yeah. You know, I know 2020 was a shortened season, so it was a little yeah. bit of a weird season anyway. But what was it? Can you just describe what that first, the first moment was like for you to, to come out into that environment with that uniform on in that stadium? Just how can, I, how can you even, can you put that into words like what that was like for you? Yeah, I think the, it was, so we opened, it was obviously the 2020 year when, 
you know, things kind of hit the fan and we were delayed and we got a late start, but we were the opening game uh, in July against the Nationals. So I think at that point we're coming off of having won the World Series and it was going to be Garrett Cole versus Max Scherzer on opening night and we we're the only game playing. Now it was weird because there's no fans in the stands, but you do get this sense of like anticipation of like, wow, this is really happening and, you know, putting on the uniform and like staring in the mirror and like being like, like this, these, I always joke, like the pinstripes have a lot of weight to them. Like it's a heavy <laughs> uniform, just, you know, metaphorically and physically, you know? So, um, you know, I think that it was, you know, standing behind Garrett Cole as he's getting warmed up to start the game. And, you know, we just signed him to this major deal and, you know, Max Scherzer warming up on the other side. And you can just feel like this is, you know, this is the pinnacle of baseball right here, even without the fans. So I think it was, it was definitely an exciting time. And I don't, I don't think it really came to full fruition of like the, the magnitude of what we were doing until probably last year when we got to, you know, for me, Fenway Park, uh, Yankees versus Red Sox. And I grew up you know, in New England. So on the other side of that rivalry, but, you know, in a place that I, I knew, you know, so I've been there and I've experienced those games. But when you're on the field and, you know, taking a mound visit and walking back to the dugout and like looking back into the crowd and being like, wow, this, you're really here. Like this, <laughs> the, the magnitude of the, the amount of people watching and the energy in the, in the crowd and the game is just, it was something to like really hold on to. And this is, this is a really cool experience and one that, you know, I wish a lot of people would be able to, to get knowing that they've kind of gotten to a point in their career of something that they dreamed about when they were a kid and didn't know if it was ever realistic or possible, but just one day at a time chipped away at it. Pretty incredible story. Matt, before we wrap it up, is there anything else that you would like to say, whether it's about your own experience, about youth baseball, anything that, that to kind of leave people with anything maybe I didn't get to that you would like to say before we wrap this up? Oh, this has been great. I had a lot of, a lot of great questions and a good conversation here. I think the biggest thing I would just say is like, it, if, if I can make it to this role, like I don't, wouldn't say anybody can do it because I don't think that's fair to say or realistic to say, but I do think it shouldn't be off limits to anybody to think they can do this. And then it's just a matter of the work they're willing to put in and, and I, one one comment I would say is don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to reach out to new people. Like put yourself out there, put your content out there. If you have, you know, interesting thoughts about, you know, pitches or deliveries or whatever your craft is, like I would say put it out there, get feedback on it, continue to grow, continue to grow your network. Like that's that's really how I got here. It wasn't anything magical. There were no magical connections I started with. It was just more like be a good person you know, root for other people to succeed and hopefully you continue to grow and, you know, opportunities present themselves. This is Matt Blake. Everybody He's the pitching coach for the New York Yankees who spent uh, more time than maybe he and I both anticipated in this podcast, a little bit longer than, uh, than we normally have. But, but honestly, that conversation we got into Matt with your, with your path to get to where you are now, um, you know, it's hard to kind of wrap that up any, with any less time than we did. So thank you so much for your time today. This has been, uh, truly, truly enjoyable. Today's podcast is brought to you by Crossover Symmetry and ArmCare.com. Uh, Matt, one last time, thank you so much. And I hope this is not the last time we have you here. I hope you, we can get you back soon uh, again for another yeah, podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on.